Hi, I'm Martina McBride. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories. But you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children. But then, neither is the music business. (laughs) So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. Well, today we are welcoming Tony Conway, president of Conway Entertainment, to the Shady Ladies. And Tony is one of our oldest and dearest friends. We've had lots of mutual clients together. We've had lots and lots and lots of laughs. And Tony's just one of the really special people in Nashville, and we're delighted to have him today. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome. One of the authentic people in Nashville. Well, we're happy to have you, Tony. Uh, well, you thank know, before you. Before we get into this, I read the bio that Katie sent me, and it reminded me of a lot of things, but something I see you neglected to put in the bio was your career as the great Sassini. What was it that you were? The great Zucchini. Yes. Uh, the that great was my- <laughs> Zucchini. Tell us about that. Well, I was a trapeze artist for one day. And uh, it was a helicopter act at the Illinois State Fair. And uh, I had Waylon and Neil Young there together to do a concert that night. And the, uh, the act that this helicopter would take off and a guy would hang below on a trapeze and do an act while he flew over the grandstand. And so Waylon and Neil Young were watching this guy practice and they go, you've got to be a crazy son of a bitch to do that. And I said, oh, I could do that. That's easy. And they go, what? And I said, yeah, I could do that. That's easy. And they said, I'll bet you, I don't think you can. I'll bet you $500 you can't do that. And I said, well, if you're both bet, I'm on. So they did. So I go running to the trapeze guy and say, hey, you got to let me try this. But here's the secret. Don't go up more than 10 feet. So if I (laughs) fall, it won't kill me. And they, they didn't but want to do me, it. But what they, did you I have ta- on? You were dressed I, like I, a well, at the, at the <laughs> They let me put on the costume. <laughs> yeah, it was an Elvis jumpsuit type of thing. Anyway, I did it. But what happened was they didn't tell the helicopter uh, pilot. And so when I got on the trapeze and he took off, he literally went 100 feet up in the air and flew over the grandstand just like he would his regular show. And I didn't have any any kind of a safety net or any harness or anything. I was the dumbest thing I ever did in my entire life. But uh, honestly, uh, I was petrified while I was on the trapeze, yes. And uh, I kept trying to signal to him, go down, go down, but he couldn't hear me, obviously. And uh, the people on the ground, the people on the ground were going, bring him down, bring him down. But it, after, I think about five minutes later, he realized that he had made a mistake and he landed the, the helicopter and I jumped off. So, yeah, that was that's just one of many stories we have. The outfit was so funny. 
When, when yeah. I first met Tony, he was the president of Buddy Lee Attractions, which was a huge powerhouse um, booking agency in Nashville. And it was headed by a really amazing kind of character uh, named Buddy Lee. And they represented everybody from Bill Monroe to Willie Nelson to George Strait to Garth Brooks to the Dixie Chicks. Just anybody you can think of. And Buddy was such a character. Tell us about him. And Tammy and George but, and virtually everybody. Ricky Van But Schellner, Buddy Lee had was, been a wrestler, which you're not including in it. He was a, his own wild character. He had been a wrestler, and his wife had also been a wrestler. His two wives had been a wrestler. He was uh, oh, his first one, one of his wives was the great Moolah, who was a professional wrestler. And then his uh, second wife was Rita Cortez, who was also a professional wrestler. But uh, yeah, Buddy was a wrestler. And then Unbelievable. He worked for Vince McMahon's father with the WWE. Um, actually, the way I met Buddy is uh, I, I rented a two-room office on the first floor of the building that Buddy Lee Attractions was in. The Buddy Lee, Buddy Lee Agency was on the two top floors, and the bottom floor they rented out to different independent companies. And so I had, I had uh, opened up a little one-man talent agency when I first came to Nashville booking Holiday Inns and Ramada Inns and high schools and proms and, you know, college fraternity and sorority parties and that kind of thing. And so that's where I was working out of. And, and one night, he uh, about 8 o'clock, I used to work late because I could get a hold of the club owners at that time. He knocked on my door and he said, hey, I notice when I leave at night your light's on and I hear your voice on the phone. If you ever want a job as an agent with my company... Just go down the hall, go up the elevator, and I've got a desk for you. And I was like, huh. that's what I'd always wanted, you know. That's what I'd always wanted to to hear. And he was, at the time, the biggest talent agency in Nashville. That was back in 1975. So I said, well, thank you, Mr. Lee. Did he have George and Tammy then? Uh, he had George. He didn't have Tammy at that time. Uh, but he said, I said, thank you, Mr. Lee, but I think I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. And I, so I passed on the offer and I got home and the, my girlfriend at the time, which was my future wife, Nancy, <laughs> said, uh, what did he say? And I said, he offered me a job. She said, well, did you take it? I said, no, I turned it down. She said, well, you better call him first thing in the morning and take that job, which is what I did. And I was there for 33 years and I was glad I did. The day I started representing uh, Willie, uh, Buddy sent me a dozen roses and a note that said, welcome to the family. And I just always loved yeah. him from that point forward because, you know, the whole Willie thing is such a family, you know, event. And it was so obvious yeah. how close Buddy was to him and you were to Willie to the point that you all planned the first Farm Aid, which is you know, an amazing, was an amazing event. Talk about that a bit, Tony. Well, it was uh, it was actually, oh, it was amazing and it was overwhelming at the same time uh, because I think it was around the 10th or 12th, 10, 11, 12 of August when Willie was performing in Springfield, Illinois at the Illinois State Fair and Buddy... What year was that? 
1985. <clears throat> and uh, Buddy used to travel with Willie on all of his shows back in those days. And so I was producing the Illinois State Fair for Buddy. So we were all three together that night. And Willie said uh, he wanted to come, me to come on the bus. And I went on the bus and he said, do you know if the governor is going to come to the show tonight? And I said, as a matter of fact, he is. He said, well, I'd like to talk to him before the show on my bus. I've got an idea. What's that? Well, I want to I want to do a concert for America. This is a, I remember him saying that very clearly. And I said, oh, kind of like Live Aid did? And he says, exactly. He said, Bob Dylan's the one that said we should do something for America, and so I want to do it for the American farmers, but I need a place to do it. And I think Governor Thompson could probably help me find a place right here in middle America. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he did. And Governor Thompson came, and that's when Willie asked him to, to find a, a venue. And literally within 25 minutes, Governor Thompson had the University of Illinois in Champaign, the stadium there that held 80,000 people, and he turns around and tells Willie, okay, I got your stadium, now what do we do? And that's when we started that night putting Farm Aid together, and I guess it would have been, uh, let's see, five, six weeks later that we did the show. So that's how quick it all happened. It was uh, an exhausting, amazing uh, an event that will never be repeated anywhere Anytime and mention some of that. Mention some of the acts because you know people not might not remember you know that hear this. How you know who all appeared on Farm Aid, the original Farm Aid. Well, Willie wanted it to be all genres of music, so it was, you know, it was everything from uh, rock. In fact, uh, I was telling somebody yesterday when I heard about Eddie Van Halen passing. That was the first time that Van Halen appeared live. Uh, with Sammy Hagar as their lead singer. So Van Halen oh, was there. Oh, you're kidding. At Farm Aid? Uh, at Farm Aid 1, yeah. Loretta Lynn, uh, Billy Joel, uh, Glenn Campbell. Uh, you know, it just goes on. Waylon, The Highwayman. Bob Dylan. B.B. Uh, B. King, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty. Uh, what, were the Eagles just, there or was just Don Henley? No, the Eagles were not there, but I think Don Henley, yes, Don Henley by himself at that time performed. That was Vince Gill's first public stadium performance. Um, wow. It was, it was amazing. Carol King. Um, it just, you know, it was, uh, and we raised a lot of money. Was it televised on TNN? Yes, it was televised it was televised and it was yeah, live. Paul Corbin was involved, wasn't he? Yeah, Paul Corbin was the president of, of TNN at the time. He was there and we had an audience of 80,000 people uh, in the stadium. And we raised a couple million dollars on television. It was a wonderful, you know, it was exhausting. But after it was all over with, it was probably the most... Uh, I would have to say it's the highlight of my career as far as doing an event. And it still goes on. All these years later, it's still 
the organization has managed to, you know, do a concert every year, including this year. And uh, it's yes. still the same group of people, by and large. And, uh, you know, Carolyn and it's Hugo. needed more than ever right now. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's great. And uh, I did see it this year. I, I make it a point. If I don't go, I, I watch it on television. So it's wonderful. It was a virtual, wasn't it a virtual event this year? Um, it was, you know, it was different because you would have, you know, when they would say, uh, here's Neil Young, he was at his farm in California or his ranch in California, and he was just kind of go out to the chicken coop with an acoustic guitar and sing a song, uh, which was cool because well, you would good. never have the op you would never have the opportunity to see that. And when Willie performed with his two sons, you know, at their home in Austin, it was very cool. So I thought it was really nice. I thought it was it was fun to watch. The sound was great, um, and they had a lot of different artists uh, performing this year, more than normal, more than it would be if they were in a live concert. Now Tony was a big deal, and still is a big deal, of course, at the Country Music Association, and was instrumental in uh, moving fanfare. Uh, to downtown Nashville as opposed to the fairgrounds and changing the name to FamFest. And I sort of miss the old fanfare, Tony. I mean, I know that it's great for the business and, you know, you bring in so many more people and all of that. But I miss, you know, the fun we used to have in the little tents backstage at uh, the old fanfare. Has uh, the movement yeah. everything that you hoped for? it? And the fans were much closer to the artists back then. You know, the fans could really reach out and touch the artists. You know, I remember Laurie doing it, and all of her fans were right there, and Reba, and, you know, certain artists stayed for, like, 10 or 15 hours, like Reba and Garth. And the fans... Well, they could still really, sign, you know, don't they, Tony? Don't they sign now at the... Uh, oh, yeah. We and, have actually yeah. more people, more artists sign now than did back then. So and it's indoors and it's air conditioned in the Nashville Convention Center. So it's a uh, it's a much better situation, and we tripled the size of the audience. Actually, more than tripled size of the audience because uh, when we moved it downtown, we took the Titan Stadium, we took uh, you know all the Broadway and Second Avenue and Riverfront and the newest Sand Amphitheater and uh, the Convention Center and the Bridgestone Arena, and uh, the Ryman. So it's really the whole downtown campus. And, you know, with the, with the ticket sales, we've been selling out in advance every year since, oh, probably around 2006. When, you know, we started, we moved it down there in 2000. So it's been selling out every year. And it's great because we can sell in stadium, we have about, 55 to 60 sellable, thousand sellable seats. And uh, there's no way. At the fairgrounds, it was 17,000. It had a very cool vibe at the fairgrounds. It was kind of like a, a small county fair, you know. But it was, none of the facilities had air conditioning. The foreign press used to come in all the time. There was always writers from the Netherlands and England and Germany. Well, they Are still, still come. They, they still, they still come. More than ever. Oh yeah, they well, still. Soon. Yes, they do, and we actually do a international show now 
uh, one of the nights where we have artists from different countries from around the world that perform. So, yeah, it's it's oh, gotten much, cool. much bigger. Remember the show we did, uh, Tony, as the, the extra night at Fanfare back when it was at the um, uh, Raceway? And we had... Um, we did a Beach Boys show, and a show had never been done yes. on that day before, and whether the fans would stay or not. And it was packed, and that was a blast, too. Well, I just remember that every night was a different label. Another three labels would do the shows. And, uh, you know, the big excitement was who was going to perform. And, uh, you know, I used to stay for a lot of those shows, even though it was so hot. Fanfare was always oh, so yeah. hot. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. unbelievable. And I remember one year, my uh, now deceased friend, Julia Reed, came from Vogue and brought this big photographer, Arthur Elcourt. And I remember he was so mesmerized. He was like crawling under the buses to get to the other bus because all the artists would park their buses out in the field there. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it was unbelievable. What went on? Well, you know, we had a lot of uh, we had a lot of people that came to fanfare that you wouldn't expect just because of what they had heard about. You know, it's it was the the ultimate country music concert and experience. But one of the people that came to fanfare was Paul McCartney. Huh, he wanted really? to come. What? He What's wanted that? to see it. That was back in the when he he was recording here in Nashville and he rented a farm in Lebanon, and he was here for about four months, and uh, I can't remember the year, but but he did come because I've got pictures, <laughs> um, and yeah, he was backstage well, and that. he didn't perform, he did not perform, but he was there. Yeah, Nashville, you know, fanfare, those those things were such huge fan events that, you know, and I didn't realize they were so successful now because I thought when they left the fairgrounds, it was going to really change things. Well, it did, Susan, because we, you know, we we made a few big changes. We, we did a network television special. We were still the only right. uh, net, network television festival on television. So that was a big change. We also created a foundation to take half of the profits of Music Fest and Fanfare and put it back into music education. And we, we started a thing called Keep the Music Playing. So, um, you know, through the years, we've donated close to $20 million um, to music education. Well, it must be it must be amazing for you, Tony, because you know when you started in the business, almost that corny atmosphere of fairs and things like that, and how country music has really evolved now. I mean, even just from fanfare to fan fest, it's reflected in everything. Yeah. You know the way that the acts are handled. You know the marketing efforts. The uh, you know the brands. They're all a brand now. You know uh, stadium tours. I remember when I came to Nashville, it was a big deal if, if a country artist played an arena. I know with Randy, and Tony also manages oh, yeah, Randy Travis yeah. now. But, you know, we were going into places that country acts had never played. And now it's all, you know, very common. You've got Garth doing um, uh, stadiums, who Tony also well, worked with. Uh, Kenny yeah. Chesney, so many acts. It's just a totally different business and uh, environment and town. 
just in the time that I've been here, let alone the time you've been here. And you know, Tony, it was like a rite of passage for these acts to go with you, like Garth and Trisha and Randy. Uh, you know, it was a big rite of passage to be booked by, and the Dixie Chicks to and be the booked Dixie by Tony Chicks. Conway and Buddy Lee Attractions. I mean, you had everybody when Those they started off. I had the Dixie Chicks for 14 years. And when they started out, when I first got them, they were wearing like little cowgirl outfits. Uh, it's amazing what happened with the Dixie Chicks, you know? And what about Garth? I mean, you were there with Garth, you know, right yeah. at the beginning and when he was exploding. And that was unbelievable in country music. I mean, I had had the experience with Randy. Garth Brooks, it's an interesting story with Garth because he walked in off the street on 16th Avenue to our office and uh, unannounced and went up to the receptionist and asked if he could speak to somebody. Uh, he wanted to play some songs. And, of course, she said, no, you have to have an appointment. And he said, well, can I leave a cassette tape? And she said, yes. So he left a cassette tape. And his phone number and his name. Cassette, a word you never hear anymore. No. And uh, at the time, uh, Buddy Lee was working out of his home in Mount Juliet. He wasn't really coming into the office anymore since I was there. And uh, but, but when tapes came in, he loved to listen to new music. And so when tapes came into the office, they would... Uh, put them in an envelope and take them home to him each night because several of his children worked at the office. And so they would take him to his house. He'd listen to him. So the next morning he called and he said, look, you need to get the hold of this guy. There's something, I can hear something in his voice that's different. Have him come up and play a couple of songs and see what you think, you know? So we did. And he came up that day he went, the one of the bigger offices we had there was a guy named Joe Harris, one of our agents. And so we went in there and he started playing. And we, I think we had about eight agents in the room. And we all just looked at each other after about three songs. And we were just like kind of our mouth dropped. And it was like, this is something really special, you know. Um, and he played a couple of songs that he wrote. And he played a couple that he didn't write. But they, they, they all came off the same way. So we offered him a, we offered to sign him exclusively right then and there on the spot. He didn't have a record deal. He didn't have anything. Didn't have a manager. He didn't have anything. So we signed Garth Brooks that day, and uh, wow. the rest is history. Obviously, that's an amazing story that I didn't even know, Tony. I didn't know it either, but I knew that you had Garth before anybody. And then I also signed Trisha Yearwood uh, when she, you know, after she graduated from uh, Belmont University. She was a demo singer, wasn't she? Yeah, and that's where Garth met her. It's, they were singing demos together. But it's it's a small world. Quick Roy Overson story. The first day that I actually had a meeting with him was at his house. And uh, a guy named Jimmy Gosnell, who was working for Buddy Lee at the time, he and I went out to Roy's house to have this meeting about setting up the tour. And uh, Was he married to Barbara so we then? Were, yes, he was married to Barbara. And uh, so we were sitting Barbara. in a, kind of a den overlooking the lake. 
and the phone rings and Barbara answers it and she says, Roy, I hate to interrupt your meeting, but there's somebody on the phone here that I think you might want to talk with. And he goes, well, see if I can call him back. And she said, no, I think you need to take it right now. And he goes, well, you know, and she says, it's George Harrison. <laughs> so that kind of freaked me out. <laughs> but uh, That's when they yeah. did the traveling Wilburys. And Roy Orbison also appeared on Farm Aid One. It was probably one of his last performances. And you also represented Bill Monroe. I did. Which I think is amazing because Bill Monroe actually, you know, invented a, a form of music that we're all still listening to. So it's always, when I got to meet Bill Monroe, um, I was, you know, just thrilled. And I know you were very close to him. Yeah, he was kind of, you know, he was kind of like a grandfather to me. Uh, I just, I really wanted to take care of him because when I got involved with Bill Monroe, he was just, nobody was really watching out for him. Nobody was helping him. Nobody was really booking him the right way. Uh, and so I said, you know, this man is a treasure. He also is the only living American that created a style of music. So it's very special, and we're going to have to, we're going to have to up the, you know, we're going to have to up things on this man. So <laughs> the bluegrass world wasn't a big fan of mine. And so the, I just, you know, I said, look, he's got to have a dressing room with a, with a restroom. He's got to have a six-pack of water. He needs some coffee. What You know, little bitty simple things, but things that really meant a lot to him. And because uh, all these bluegrass festivals were outdoors and talk about hot out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but So I made all the promoters do this, and they did not like it. They did not like me at all. I was a bad guy. But but they did it because they wanted Bill Monroe, and he was the biggest star of bluegrass music. And then I continued to raise his price to what I felt like he deserved, and he, he everybody else felt like he deserved. Because uh, when I got involved with him, he was doing shows for door deals and percentages. No guarantee. Wow. That's great. What was Ralph Stanley's in involvement in the bluegrass thing tony ralph stanley uh well you know he was he came along the same time as monroe i mean there's there was uh lonzo and oscar there was there was jimmy martin there was there's a lot of bluegrass artists but bill monroe was the ultimate and the founder and the creator in fact i got to go to washington dc with him and have lunch with president reagan uh, when he honored him and Frank Sinatra at a luncheon, and uh, they gave him the Presidential Medal of Honor for being the only living American that created a style of music. And that's also the time that I carried a briefcase uh, on our trip to the White House and didn't know that it had a loaded 357 pistol in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, somehow we got through, we went through the we flew up there from Nashville, and I took the I was the one carrying the briefcase and I put it through the metal detector at the airport, and uh, I can remember the girl that was supposed to read the screen talking to Mr. Monroe when it went through and saying, "Oh, Mr. Monroe, you're going out of town again," you know she wasn't paying attention, obviously, and. Uh, 
So we get to Washington, D.C. The limousine picks us up, takes us straight to the White House. Uh, we, we get out of the limo. Uh, I take the briefcase because our invitations, we had put them in the briefcase. And they said, you have to have this invitation to get in the White House. That's your, that's your admission uh, ticket. So I then laid it down, like, in the, the hallway, whatever, from where we were having lunch. And then we did the whole reception thing where we met the president and Mrs. Reagan. We sat down. They had a nice lunch with a lot of senators and congressmen. And then President Reagan presented the award to Mr. Monroe, and he presented the award to Frank Sinatra, which, which was a big deal for me because I got to meet Frank Sinatra for the first time. In fact, Monroe, uh, this will be a quick little story. Monroe was a great practical joker. And so when we, when we arrived, they put us in a holding room, which was a, you know, kind of like a, a living room. But the only person in there was Frank Sinatra. And he had his back to us and he was looking at a big painting on the wall. And so we walked up and he turned around and he was like, oh, Mr. Monroe, Frank Sinatra, nice to meet you. He said, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. A lot of people don't think I listen to bluegrass, but I do. And I listen to the Grand Ole Opry. I mean, he, he actually said all that. And Bill Monroe says, I don't believe I caught your name. <laughs> and he goes, oh, my name. <laughs> he said, my name is Frank Sinatra. He said, I'm a singer like you. He goes, hmm, yeah, I believe I heard of you. And that was just Bill Monroe. That was Bill Monroe all over. Oh, how uh, funny. And then he said, do you know my manager here, Tony Conway? He's from Kentucky and he's a good boy. And uh, Sinatra goes, no, I don't believe I've had the pleasure. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and the end of that story is we were flying back out of Washington, D.C. to Nashville and the, the briefcase goes through the radar and they find the gun. And they go, oh, no, is that? And they go, do you know that Did gun's loaded? Did you still loaded? not realize and the gun was there? I didn't even know it was there until then, until I, they op opened the briefcase and took it out. And I said, uh, well, he's a little senile. He doesn't probably remember putting it in his briefcase. Where did you all come from? And I said, well, oh, boy, here we go. I said, we flew up here from Nashville this morning, went to the White House, had President lunch with President Reagan, and we're flying back tonight to do the Grand Old Opry. And he's, and the guy was like, right, okay, up against the wall. And he searched us, handcuffed us, and they took us down <laughs> to a jail cell and uh, underneath the airport there. And then they called the White House and said, did you have a Conway and a Monroe there? You did? Well, you better come over here right now. So the Secret Service came over. And uh, long story short, um, uh, Mr. Monroe did not realize that the gun was in his briefcase. It had been on, the briefcase had been on his bus next to his bed. And the only reason he brought it was because I, I hounded him. You have to bring the briefcase to put your invitation in. So when we get there, we can show him the invitation that we got for this award. And uh, so we, we kept it quiet. Uh, they let us go. They kept the gun, but he ended up having to pay a $17,000 fine. Um, wow. 
And uh, and Bill Monroe never had a speeding ticket in his life. You know what I mean? That was the it was <laughs> he was so embarrassed. He was so nervous about it. But hey, it just it's one of those things that happened that it, nobody would have ever dreamed. And and how we were able to get a loaded. 357 on the property of the White House without anybody ever noticing or checking or I don't know. I still to this day don't know how that happened. Nowadays, Tony manages the mega group Alabama, Randy Travis, Lori Morgan, Exile, and a bunch of new acts. It's a very different business these days. How do you find it, Tony? It's completely different. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's much better, but in a lot of ways, it's not much better. Uh, I kind of like a lot of things that we used to do. Uh, it, it's just a different, completely different way the entertainment business works now. And also, when you talk about music, you know, it's that's all changed. Not necessarily the 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 styles or the way it's done, but recorded, but the way that you buy it or you listen to it, you know, it's not like you don't go to the record stores anymore. You you listen to it on your iPad or your laptop or download. Downloading. Yeah. Listen, this was one of the best podcasts for me. Tony, you have such (laughs) great stories. I love the podcast. We haven't even talked about some of our most famous clients, you know, like George and Tammy and Ricky Van Shelton and that whole crew that, um, and then, and, and Andy Tony Travis. Conway of on the phone. <laughs> that was KT Osmond. That was awesome. Ricky Van Shelton. <laughs> that was Ricky Van. When, 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 they, where were you, where were they in some place where there's like, you know. They were, uh, they were up in New York at a, uh, performing arts amphitheater. Which is a art yeah, but community. there's a, it's the town but, is well but, known but, for like yeah I can't remember the name of the town but there's in this park where the amphitheater is where they were doing the show there's all these statues all over and so KT and Ricky used to ride bicycles in the afternoon uh, after sound check and Ricky thought he was at a some kind of cult religious place. He was. It's it's a cult up there. And he said to Katie, get Tony Conway on the phone. <laughs> I'm not performing tonight. That's what he said. So he called me and he goes, well, you, what kind of place did you book us into? This is a religious, a religious cult place. I'm not going to do a show here. I said, Ricky, it is not a religious cult place. It's a... It's a community where artists, painters, and sculptures live. They live year-round, year and, and it's, it's wonderful. And, and he, I had to convince him that he was safe and there wasn't going to be any devil worshipers showing up. And, you know, he was always, uh, he always had some concerns about certain things. He, we had him play the Kentucky Derby Festival the night before the Derby at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. Sold out, 19,000 seats. It's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm in Nashville. They're up there. Uh, Lori Morgan actually was opening for Ricky. And Michael Campbell, his manager, calls me, and he goes, Tony, we got a big problem. What? 
He said, Ricky's not going to go on. He's not going to do the show tonight. I said, what are you talking about? It's, it's sold out. And I think he was getting paid like $100,000. And he goes, well, at Soundcheck, he went walking out in the arena and he saw the Marlboro Man <laughs> up above the lighting rig on the stage, the logo of the Marlboro Man. And, said, and, the, and it says Marlboro Presents. And he says, uh, this was a time that Ricky had gone through a kind of a religious experience, shall we say, and he had quit <laughs> drinking and smoking. An epiphany. Quit drinking and smoking. And so anything to do with tobacco or alcohol, he wouldn't have anything to do with it. So he told Michael, he said, well, if they're sponsoring this show, I'm not doing it. And, my, <laughs> and Michael said, what are we going to do? I, he's got to do the show. I said, I don't know, but I'm on my way. I hung the phone up, jumped in the car. Joey Lee, who uh, worked with me, Buddy's son, we drove to Louisville, got there in three hours. And uh, of course, everybody, by that time, everybody knew what he was, what his plan was. He wasn't going to do the show. So of course, the Derby committee and the promoters were there. You got to do. So I go on the bus and I said, Ricky, I have taken care of the problem. You have? What did you do? I said, the Marlboro Man is gone. I, he, you will not be at the top of the lighting rig tonight. That, that poster or whatever, that scrim, that sign is gone. Nobody will see it. Everything's fine. He goes, well, okay. As long as it's gone, okay, I'll do the show. So he did the show. And what happened was when I got off the bus... I got a hold of the a building manager and the promoter and the derby people, and I said, look, you can keep the Marlboro guy lit up during everything except when Ricky comes out. When he comes out, I want you to put some kind of a sheet over that logo and <laughs> do not light up that part of the stage. <laughs> and they said, okay. I said, otherwise, you don't have a show tonight. So that's how we got through that show. Uh, it amazes me sometimes what you have to do to just, you know, to to get the thing done. This was a great podcast, Tony. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, you the, the shady ladies are two of my favorite people in Nashville. So we've had a long career together and we've had a lot of fun and we've been through a lot of good times and a few bad times. But it's it's been wonderful. And uh, I appreciate it, it and I always been, love listening to you, to your uh, well, podcast. Way, I think Tony. it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We really, I'm so happy that you shared some stories with us. And I know that the audience is going to love hearing them. I think that's what people want to hear is, you know, is the different stories, not the regular stories that everybody, you know, reads about. But, you know, there's a little... Weird things that happen behind the scenes, like, you know, with Bill Monroe and Willie and all those people. So thank you so much. Love you, Tony. Thank you. All right. Well, take care. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a, uh, you know, word of mouth thing because 
We're putting our faith in your hands. We are. For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Joel Beaver. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Schaefer's. He is also our engineer and editor.